Well, thank you, folks, for that beautiful worship. And uh, let me welcome you folks to the service today. This is our Gould Holiness Lecture Series, Spring 2018. And uh, we have as a guest speaker today and Friday, and he'll all also be speaking at the symposium on Thursday, uh, Dr. Scott Daniels, and looking forward to hearing what he has to say today. The Gould Lectures on Holiness offer Eastern Nazarene College uh, community the opportunity to hear outstanding Wesleyan scholars discuss aspects of the Christian doctrine of holiness. Dr. J. Glenn Gould began the lectures in 1945 in memory of his parents, the Reverend and Mrs. John Gould. The inaugural lecture was published in a book entitled The Whole Council of God. Until his death in 1974, J. Glenn Gould remained the sponsor of the lecture series, which is brought to the campus of ENC the most prominent lecturers and preachers on the doctrine of holiness. Following Dr. Gould's passing, his daughter and son-in-law, Winifred and the late Harold Jones, continued to sponsor the series in loving memory of their grandparents, the Reverend and Mrs. John Gould, and parents, Dr. and Mrs. J. Glenn Gould. In addition, the college has been the beneficiary of support from the Gould family for establishing the Gould Library, originally located in Angel Hall, but now relocated to a beautiful space on the second floor of Nice Library. Dr. Scott Daniels is senior pastor at Nampa College Church of the Nazarene and pastor scholar uh, in residence at Northwest Nazarene University. He has pastored in Pasadena, California, Richardson, Texas, and until recently served as the dean of the School of Theology at Azusa Pacific University. He is a frequent guest speaker and lecturer at churches, camp meetings, and college campuses. He received his BA from Northwest Nazarene University and his MDiv and PhD in Theology and Ethics from Fuller Theological Seminary. And Scott has taught at several colleges and seminaries nationally and internationally. He has served as a full-time professor of theology and ethics at SNU and Azusa Pacific, a contributor to several books, journals, and magazines. He is the author of The First 100 Days, A Pastor's Guide, Seven Deadly Spirits, The Message of Revelation's Letters for Today's Church, The Cycle of Victorious Living, Commit, Trust, Delight, and Rest in Jesus Christ. And his most recent book is entitled Embracing Exile, Living Faithfully as God's Unique People in the World. Join me in welcoming Dr. Daniels, please. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Uh, if you have a Bible with you this morning or some electronic device that has a Bible on it, turn with me to the book of Joshua, to the last chapter of the book of Joshua, Joshua 24. It's always a delight to be at ANC. I've been here a few times, and uh, it's always fun to be back. Just one rule this week in reading that description. Um, if you see me around, just call me Scott this week. When I finished my doctorate, uh, which took a little while, my wife threw me a party. Um, you know, that dissertation is kind of like giving birth, I think. I don't know, uh, but anyway, I'm told. Um, but when I finally finished it, my wife threw me a party, and our oldest son, uh, who was about seven at the time, I hear him talking to his friend at the party, and his friend says to him, Caleb, why are we having this party? 
He says, well, my dad's a doctor now. He says, but he's not the kind that can help anybody. Uh, so it's always felt a little odd. Um, but I hope to be a little bit helpful this week as we think about holiness. And this morning, I, I want to turn our attention to Joshua, the 24th chapter, which is a very fascinating moment. Um, if you know Israel's history, uh, God has redeemed them out of Israel. They pass through the Red Sea. They wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. Moses dies, and Joshua takes over. Joshua 24 is the moment where he's about to lead the people into the promised land, but he gives them one last sermon, one last lecture before they enter into the promised land. There were probably young people about your age um, who did not have memories of having gone through the Red Sea, but they had memories of the wilderness. And Joshua does the fascinating thing. He re-narrates the history of their ancestors, but in the text, as you'll notice, um, he plays with the pronouns. He's going to go back and forth to talk about their ancestors and you, your ancestors and you. Here's how the text goes. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders of Israel, its leaders, judges, and officers. They presented themselves before God. Then Joshua said to the entire people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago, your ancestors lived on the other side of the Euphrates. They served other gods. Among them was Terah the father of Abraham and Nahor. I took Abraham, your ancestor, from the other side of the Euphrates. I led him around through the whole land of Canaan. I added to his descendants and gave him Isaac. To Isaac, I gave Jacob and Esau. I gave Mount Seir to Esau to take over. But Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron. I plagued Egypt with what I did to them. After that, and here we go, after that, I brought you out. I brought your ancestors out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. The Egyptians chased your ancestors with chariots and horses to the Red Sea. Then they cried out for help to the Lord. So he set darkness between you and the Egyptians. He brought the sea down on them, and it covered them. And with your own eyes, you saw what I did to the Egyptians, and you lived in the desert for a long time. The story goes on, but if you'll go to verse 14, Joshua says, So now, revere the Lord, serve him honestly and faithfully, put aside the gods that your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. But if it seems wrong in your opinion to serve the Lord, then choose today whom you will serve. Choose the gods whom your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates, or the god of the Amorites in whose land you live, but my family and I will serve the Lord. Let me pause there for just a moment. One of the odd things when you're a preacher is you never know if people actually hear what you're saying. Every Sunday I stand at the back door and shake hands, and people often say, oh, pastor, that meant so much to me when you said this, and I think, I didn't say that, but uh, you never know if they get it. But the people's response, they get what Joshua is trying to do to them. Here's what they say, verse 16, then the people answered, God forbid that we ever leave the Lord to serve other gods. The Lord is our God. He is the one who brought us and our ancestors up from the land of Egypt, from the house of bondage. What I think Joshua is doing in the 24th chapter is what I want to do with you this morning. And so we'll see how this goes. I, I kind of want to preach the whole Bible to you this morning with Joshua 24 as a lens through which to look at it. But I want to narrate you into a particular story. My degree is in ethics, and my favorite ethicist is a man by the name of Alistair McIntyre. 
Alistair McIntyre has this statement. I think we may have it on the screen, but it goes like this. I can't tell you what I'm supposed to do until I can answer the prior question, what story or stories am I a part of? I can't tell you what I'm supposed to do, what I'm supposed to do, until I can tell you, answer the prior question, of what story or stories do I find myself a part? What Joshua is trying to do to those young people standing there before them, he is trying to orient them, initiate them, bring them into the story of what God has done in the life of their ancestors, and now he is doing through them. He wants their lives now in the land of Canaan to be shaped by this particular story. A few years ago, um, as a brand new professor, so it's been a while, it's been probably 25, 26 years ago, I went to my first academic conference. Um, I was a new professor at Southern Nazarene University in Oklahoma, and my, a guy who be, has become one of my closest friends, the Old Testament professor there, a guy named Marty Michelson, we were both brand new, and neither of us had ever been to this huge academic conference uh, for theologians that happens every year. There's two big societies, the Society of Biblical Literature and the American Academy of Religion, and they meet together every year. It's always the weekend before Thanksgiving, and they always meet in a big town. I was thinking about this story this morning. I actually think it happened here, uh, that we came to Boston that year, and, uh, and it's 12,000 of the geekiest people you'll ever meet in your life. Uh, this big conference going on, and you go to all sorts of papers, some on biblical literature, some on theology, and so I went with him to an Old Testament presentation. And so there were about 150 or so people in this room as several scholars were presenting academic papers on the Old Testament. Well, my friend and I, we, we felt out of place. We felt very intimidated by these scholars. Here we were, brand new to this whole thing. So we sat in the very back row. And as the first paper was going on, we looked down the row, and our hero, both of us, our mutual hero in Old Testament studies, a man by the name of Walter Brueggemann, who was old at the time, and so he's super old now. Uh, we looked down the row, and there was Walter Brueggemann sitting at the end of the row. And as soon as we saw him, we started acting like two junior high girls that had just seen Justin Bieber. Like, we were just, oh, Walter Brueggemann, no, not Walter. And so we were saying, I said to him, Marty, you go talk to him. He goes, no, no, you talk to him. No, you talk to him. And so, like, we're playing rocks, paper, scissors to see who has to go talk to him. But as soon as the paper was over, we ran down the row. And uh, I'm sure we embarrassed ourselves. I think it was some version of, we're not worthy, we're not worthy. Hello, Dr. Brueggemann. Um, but he was so kind, and he said, oh, so great that you guys are here. I'm glad. It's nice to meet kind of new young scholars. He said, do you guys want to go to coffee? And we wet ourselves and said, yes. Uh, <laughs> yes, let's, let's go. Um, and I'll never forget sitting just at a little table having coffee with Walter Brueggemann. Two, two quick stories about that. I, so I had all these questions for him. One of the questions I had was, if, if you know him at all, you know he's just written just tons and tons of books. I joke that he's his own book of the month club. Like, he just writes and writes and writes and writes. And so I said to him, you know, Marty and I would like to be writers someday. You are like the, the king of Old Testament writing. How, how have you done that? And he said, well, years ago when I was your age, I started a discipline. He said, I get up every morning, except Sunday, I get up every morning at 5.30 and I just write for an hour and a half. He said, I, I do research other times, but I just write every morning for an hour and a half. <laughs> I remember as Marty and I walked away, we said, so we won't be great writers. All right. Click, you know, just eliminate that off the list. Um, but then I, I said, you know, Dr. Brueggemann, what, what I love about you is, is I have this sense that I could take you anywhere in the Old Testament. So when I read your stuff, it's almost as though the Old Testament has become a building for you that you dwell in. And I feel like I could drop you off in Leviticus. I could drop you off in Ecclesiastes. I could drop you off in Lamentations or Habakkuk. 
And you could tell me exactly what's going on there, that you could walk around and describe everything to me like, like you dwell within the Old Testament. So how have you done that? And he said to me, someday, Scott, you'll probably be able to do it. He said, but, but there is actually a secret. And he goes, I, I'll, I'll tell you the secret, but just promise you won't tell anybody. And I've told thousands of people. Uh, but he said, here's the secret. So I discovered years ago that there's just one story in scripture, it just gets repeated over and over and over again. He goes, would you like to know what the, what the story is? Of course. He said, here's the story. The one story that gets repeated over and over again in scripture is this, that God is calling a people, a people to be holy, a people to be a reflection of who he is in the world, a people this morning to embody his story in the world. But here's the problem. They always live in, and the word he always uses is empire. They live in empire. That they are a people who are trying to be shaped by one particular story, one particular way of seeing and being and understand their life in the world. But here's the problem. They live somewhere where there is a counter story at work, where there is a dominant story at work. And he said, so wherever I am in the scripture, I, I look for those two things what is the story that God is framing in these people, but what is the larger empire story that they are being shaped by? And so this morning, what I want to do in just uh, about 15 minutes is I want to walk you through what I think are the three or four major moments where we see story and then the counter story of God. In the beginning, the first couple of chapters of the scripture, we get a beautiful vision of what creation should be. God has created all things, has created us to be in relationship with him. And as we're in unbroken relationship with him, and we see that in the garden narrative, because we're naked and unashamed, we walk with God, walk with each other in openness. We deal with the creation in ways that have dominion over creation, not domination over creation. And we live even in proper relationship to self. We are, we're naked and unashamed. We're okay with who we are. But as we see in the story, the kind of dominant empire story, if you will, begins about chapter three, when Adam and Eve decide they're going to transcend the boundaries that God has placed in the garden. They will become their own God. They, they are delighted and attracted to that fruit, and they eat that fruit, follow the serpentine lie, and then all of a sudden, it all falls apart. God has to come and find them. They jump in the bushes. One of my favorite moments in the garden story is when God finds Adam and says, what have you done? Adam takes no responsibility. In fact, he gets a double blame in. He basically says, don't look at me. This woman you created, right? There's three of us here, and the other two are to blame. But we see all of it begin to erode and fall apart. In the second generation, Cain kills Abel. In the seventh generation, after Adam, in Genesis chapter 4, there's a guy named Lamech who sings a song to his wives about how if somebody messes with him, it's, it, I always joke, it's the first country song in the scripture. It's just a pickup truck and a dog short of being a great country song. It's, it's about how you whoop on people who mess with you. And he says, listen, if Cain was avenged seven times, surely, bow, 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 Lamech will be avenged 77 times. Right? Like, that's, that's the story, right? Um, I can do that accent because I'm in Boston. Uh, I do my Eastern accent when I'm at SNU, uh, but anyway. Uh, but 77 times, and it begins to erode away until we get to, to Genesis uh, chapter 6, where God looks at creation and says it's corrupt, it's filled with violence, and we get the Noah story, and it, 
an attempt to kind of start over, but we find at the end of it that we're back to the same patterns of brokenness, violence, sinfulness, to Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, and we're going to build a great name for ourselves, unity in this uniformity, but it it brings a destruction, a, a dividing of the map, and so we draw unnecessary lines between one another. And that's the kind of story that we find ourselves in, a story of brokenness and sadness and violence and sin and destruction and distrust of the other. But then in Genesis 12, we get what I'll call the counter story. God comes to Abraham and Sarah and says, listen, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make you the father and mother of many nations, and through you, all the world is going to be blessed. But here's what's so fascinating about that story is what God is calling them to do, we begin to learn some things about this story. It's not something they can do in their own strength. So if you're going to have a father and mother of many nations, you should pick some people who are able to have a baby. But they can't. And so finally, a 100-year-old man and a 95-year-old woman have a baby. Don't think about that too long. It's kind of a creepy story. (laughs) But they have this child of laughter, Isaac, and And the promise carries forward from Isaac into the the generations of Jacob and Joseph. But we find in Genesis 12 through 50 that it is a, a story of blessing, a story of promise, a surprising story where it's always the youngest, the one nobody expects who seems to carry that story into the world. The big part of the empire story happens then in the next book. They find them in, themselves in slavery, Pharaoh. And it's interesting in Exodus, we never know Pharaoh's name because all the Pharaohs are the same for the biblical witness. Walter Brueggemann says, Pharaoh is the embodiment of what he calls the myth of scarcity. There's not enough stuff. There's not enough goodness in the world. There's not enough food in the world. There's not enough blessing in the world. So here's what we've got to do. We've got to store it up. We've got to hoard it. We've got to build storehouses, and we'll, we'll fill those storehouses with stuff. But here's the problem. People are going to want that, so we better build walls around our storehouses. But people can climb over walls, so we better have big armies to protect the walls to protect the storehouses. And it becomes a wonderful scheme by which Pharaoh can have everybody's money, everybody's land, and ultimately everybody's labor. It's an amazing scheme for those who have to have power over those who have not. And Pharaoh becomes the embodiment, Brueggemann says, of the myth of scarcity. But here's the problem. God's people who live there, Pharaoh does not care about them. He just needs them to make cheap bricks. His economy, his empire is built on People whose name he does not know and whose future he does not care about. He just wants to make sure there aren't too many of them so they can't overthrow him. So he throws their babies in the Nile every once in a while to control their population. But that's how the the myth of scarcity functions. But God knows their name. In fact, he doesn't know Pharaoh's name, but we're barely into the story. And he knows Shifra and Pua, the two Hebrew midwives. And he redeems them. He brings them out. They pass through the Red Sea, but then they get in the wilderness. And as I love to say so often, it's one thing to get Israel out of Egypt. It's another thing to get Egypt out of them. And so over the next 40 years, he frames them, he shapes them in a counter story. And here's how the counter story goes. You've been shaped all of these years with an imagination of the myth of scarcity that, you, that when you have stuff, you better hoard it and you better save it and you better protect it. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take you to the wilderness, and by definition, the wilderness has nothing. And you're going to be hungry, 
but I'm going to bring you daily bread. It's one of my favorite texts, by the way. The word manna in Hebrew just basically means this. It's a Hebrew word that means, what is this? Right? Um, and so they wake up every morning and they say, what is this? But God says, here's what it is. It is, it is my care for you. Brueggemann would say what he's teaching them is he's breaking them from their myth of scarcity. He's teaching them the liturgy of abundance, that even in the wilderness, there is enough for them to be taken care of. But here's the deal. You can only take enough for today. God's teaching them to be a groovy people who don't have to work 24-7. So on the Sabbath, they can store up enough for two days. But if they store up more than that, if they become hoarders like they had learned from Pharaoh, then he is going to, he's going to make that rot. In the law, in Leviticus, there are all sorts of laws. I'd love to spend a whole time, if I had a whiteboard, we'd draw all over it. Let me just give you one. There's a bunch of economic laws like tithing and Sabbath, sabbatical, jubilee. One of the most interesting to me is a law called gleaning, where when the Israelites harvest, they can't harvest to the very edge of their field. In fact, they have to leave the edges unharvested. And when they get to the corners, they have to cut the corners really wide. And the reason for that, the reason they leave the edges unharvested is, is this. Because when the alien and sojourner come through, they're ready for the alien, the wanderer, the, the refugee, the person who comes through. They are prepared to welcome them. They will be a people of hospitality. One of the fascinating stories in that is, is earlier, Abraham sees three strangers and he welcomes them into his tent. He's going to be a people, and then in the, in the, the promised land, the people are going to be a people who welcome others in. So the stranger is not somebody to be feared because they may come, come and take our stuff. That's the myth of scarcity. The liturgy of abundance says, come on. Not only come on, but we've already prepared space for you in our lives. That's the counter story, and they're going to live that, and they're going to live that in a land with all sorts of people who live the empire story. And it's going to be a challenge to try to do that, but God's going to teach them to depend on him. In fact, in the book of Judges, they're going to learn that they don't need all of the trappings of military might and army. It's a strange text. The book of Judges is so weird, isn't it? But the whole story is how they do not have a king. They and, and therefore, they don't have all the trappings of kingship and nation. And so when they need one, God raises up a crazy deliverer like Samson or Barak or Deborah. My favorite story in there is Judges chapter 7, Gideon, the first time Israel has a fair fight on their hands. The Midianites are coming up, and God says, call up all the fighting men. 32,000 show up. God says, oh, this is way too many. You are now a four-point favorite in the Super Bowl of life. So ask how many are scared. 22,000, raise their hand and go home. 10,000. Now they're six-point underdogs. God says, still too many. So go down the river, watch how they drink. Some will drink like they have mothers, and they drink with cups and jugs, but others will stick their faces right down in the water and drink like dogs. Set them aside. It's supposed to be a funny story. Gideon ends up with 300 of the special guys who drink like dogs. He had 32,000 men, now he has 300 dogs. And yet this is the army God uses to bring about his victory. Here's what I'm wanting you to see. You have this story that says, here's how life works. A myth of scarcity, walls, hoarding, 
building up huge lines of protection. Here's counter story. Trust. The celebration of God's goodness, sharing with the other. That's how I'm going to frame you. That's the story that you are going to live. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, they decide that story is really hard to live. Let's kind of try to live both. So let's kind of live this, but let's have a king so he can kind of be like everybody else. Begins to fall apart. Ultimately, they fall back into the great story, only this time it's in Babylon, and Babylon is just another version of Egypt in some ways, only this time Nebuchadnezzar isn't oppressive like Pharaoh, but he figures out how to allure us into the empire. Rather than oppressing us, he he finds ways to get us to sit at his table, tries to find ways for us to still be religious, but let's not be crazy about it. So every morning, just get up and pledge your allegiance to my icon so that I'll know that it's okay for you to be Jewish, but let's just make sure you're Babylonian first. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego realize that it doesn't take very long for you to live like that until one day you wake up and you realize you're no longer a Christian who lives in America, but you're an American who happens to go to church from time to time. And that's a huge difference. Daniel, in order to be a leader, Nebuchadnezzar wants him to be more shaped by his practices than by the practices that form his life in the story. Daniel will rather go to the lions than than give up those practices. We'll talk about that tomorrow. Those practices that form and shape his life. The New Testament comes along. It's still empire story, only now it's Rome. And oh man, is this a magnificent story. It's a story about wealth and might and power and peace that's being extended throughout the land. Well, that peace is coming at the price of violence and that peace is coming at the price of slaves who continue to make sure the economy works for a few while it rides mostly on the back of their sweat and labor. But it looks good, doesn't it? (laughs) And so Caesar offers to us a particular kind of story And Jesus comes as the embodiment of the story and invites us into a kingdom. A kingdom where the meek are blessed, where the poor in spirit are blessed, where peacemakers are blessed, where where those who just hunger and thirst for the world to be set right, they are the ones who are blessed in this kingdom. These are people who are learning how hard it is to make peace by turning the other cheek and going the second mile, not just loving their neighbor, but loving their enemy as well. And they're invited into this story of redemptive love for the sake of the healing of the world embodied in the cross of Jesus Christ, which we these last few weeks have celebrated as so crazy Because as we walk away on Good Friday from Calvary, we realize that story is a good way to get killed. But we came back on Sunday to celebrate, but it is the only story that is eternal. And it is the validated story of God. And it is the story of resurrection. It is the story of the hope of new life. And it is the story that this new creation is not just something we're waiting for, but it's breaking out in our midst. So come, join in. It's a sneaky story. It's like mustard seed that everybody overlooks. It's like yeast that gets itself through dough. It's a kingdom that doesn't come like Caesar's with conquest and might, but it comes with love and mercy. That's the counter story. Come and enter into it. And so the disciples give themselves to it. 
And they embody it, and the Holy Spirit empowers them to live this story that not like Babel is a story of unity through uniformity, everybody is the same, but it is a story of unity in our diversity, in which God is bringing us together, people who would never hang out otherwise, but who come together to be family. People who pray for the day when these artificial lines we have drawn will be eliminated, and all the king's and rulers of the earth will come before the throne. Revelation pictures the story this way. You've really only got two choices. You will be shaped by a beastly story. A story that has been found in Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar and Caesar and finds itself in our empires still today. And you will be marked by that. I could be wrong about this. I'm not, but... Um, but I'm fairly convinced that you know, I grew up watching scary movies about end times. Convinced that the mark of the beast would be some bar graph that I'd have to have to go to the grocery store and run my forehead through the scanner in order to get groceries. It's a really bad reading of Revelation, in my opinion. Because it forgets that in the book of Revelation, there's also the people who've been marked by the lamb. They ne that never makes it into the scary movie. The book of Revelation basically says, right now, you are either being shaped by the empire, marked by the beast in all sorts of ways, or you are living a story. You're living a story that is marking you with the holy life of the Lamb. So Joshua says, hey, young people, you got a choice. As you get ready to enter the land, you can live the old story of the gods that our ancestors used to live, or you can accept the story of the gods in whose land you'll be living. Joshua says, as for me and my house, we decided we're going to go with this Yahweh story. The story of one who keeps bringing us out of the broken empires of the world. The people respond, far be it from us that we should abandon that story to follow some other story. We too <laughs> will live that story. We'll talk about this more during this week, but, but we are a world in some ways that is devoid of one cohesive story. What the world offers us is kind of like what Canaan offered the Israelites as they moved in, all sorts of story. you're being offered stories like the success story. Its bumper sticker is whoever dies with the most toys wins, woo! It's a great story until you find out you actually you die and then your kids just fight over your stuff. Some of you don't like that story very much because you've been raised in families that pursued that story only to find broken marriages and kind of unhappy lives. And that actually having stuff doesn't actually fulfill anything. The world's going to offer you a story called the sensuality story. Give your body over to sensuality. It's a horribly lonely story that will misuse your body and will leave you lonely and desperate and probably enslaved to some kind of idol. The world offers us a nation story, which is a healthier story than just something individualistic, but it is still its own form of idolatry. 
These days, I think the world offers to your generation a story that I call the, the story that there isn't a story, which is actually a story. That story b mostly looks like sitting in a recliner playing video games and covering yourself with Cheeto dust. Living in your mother's basement at 35. It's, it's a story. It's a story that there isn't really a story, which then leads to a kind of cultural despair. A kind of nihilistic story that there is nothing. We could go through a whole bunch of stories the world's going to offer you. And so I say to you this morning, as we think about holiness this week, as you're sent out into the world, choose this day what story you're going to enter into. Because you won't know what to do until you figure out what story you're a part of. You can't answer the question, what are you to do, until you first answer the question, of what story are you a part? Are you a part of the success story, the sensuality story, the nation story, that there isn't a story story? Or some combination of a bunch of them? But God is still inviting a people, young and old, to lean in and to respond and say, as for me and my house, we will live this story. There's an old hymn that goes like this. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Let me take it up a little bit. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God. Born of his spirit, washed in his blood. For this is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. God, I pray this morning as we begin this week together that you invite us into your holy story to learn to be reflections of who you are. We are the people of a counter story today. So mark us with the life of the Lamb. May we be reflections of him. Give us eyes to discern the idols, the other stories that are offered to us and give us the courage to give ourselves to the one true story, the one true hope, the redemption of all creation. May we, with our ancestors, may we follow your story. For we pray in your son's name. Amen. Can we thank Dr. Daniels for being with us today? Can we all stand? Just sing one more song before we head out. Praise God from whom all
Don't be scared of change. 